Hey, this is Kenny. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. The goal of the show is to inspire and give insight into the healthcare system through the lens of an anesthesiologist. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the channel so that you get new episodes as they come out. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to season two of Behind the Drapes. For those of you who caught season one, that was all about getting to know the anesthesiologist in our department, hopefully inspired some of you out there to go into anesthesia or even go into medicine. Uh, The second season, hoping to attract a broader audience around medicine now that we're talking about money, something very important to people and something that often gets forgotten about in medical school education and residents and attendings find themselves in a situation where they start making a lot of money, they don't really know what to do with their money, and they can't stretch their money as far as somebody else who had some financial literacy taught in their background. Um, So for my first guest for this season, I'm welcoming back Dr. Shamal Asher, who is somebody who actually lectures the medical students at Brown University about this topic. So when I was coming up with the idea of how I was going to organize this season. I actually went to his uh, lecture, took took down a bunch of notes, basically chopped up this season um, along the way uh, that his lecture went, and we came up with some good information that I think a lot of you are going to enjoy. So without further ado, welcome back, Shamal, to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. I feel honored. I was the opening act for season one, and uh, I guess I'm opening act for season two. That's right. I guess you must have made a pretty decent impression on season one. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. And uh, I, I love listening along to all your different episodes. And I've been uh, uh, sort of keeping track as the episodes are dropping. And every day I'm learning something new. So I'm really enjoying uh, your work. Great. And I and I hope a lot of people learn even more from this season. Uh, like I mentioned, it's not something that's very taught. It's not taught often in medical school education, but something that's really important. And I think one thing that you did really well when you were talking to the fourth year medical students was starting your presentation with why it's so important. Money is something that's uncomfortable to talk about, and it's not something we talk about normally in social settings. Um, But you have sort of positioned yourself where now your colleagues are coming to you for financial advice because you seem to have a little bit of a step up in knowledge base. Um, and so I think resources like you are important and hopefully resources like this podcast are important. So why don't you start off by telling us why this is so important? Yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, medical school like, rightly focuses on, on uh, the medicine, learning the medicine, you know, learning the uh, basic sciences initially, which uh, sort of comes at a very high volume. So it's very stressful you know, step one, step two exams are very high stakes exams. So rightly the focus is uh, learning on the medicine side. And then the clinical years come through and we're trying to just figure out where, what we want to do with our lives. So the first, you know, the third and the beginning of fourth year tends to be focused very much on clinical medicine. And uh, we don't unfortunately learn, we learn a lot about how to be good doctors, how to take good care of our patients. But unfortunately we don't really learn about the business side of medicine. And of course, healthcare in America is uh, sort of one of the highest component of uh, American GDP. So healthcare is a business. So after you're done medical school, after you're done with the residency, uh, the, the business side of medicine hits you and many providers are not uh, sort of ready or uh, prepared. So I think that it 
more so now, I think it's becoming recognized that uh, it is very important to learn. So the business side of medicine, um, both from the sort of medicine aspect of it, our views, how doctors get paid, how hospital billing occurs, insurance, working through those components, as well as personal finance, how uh, we as physicians should be handling our money. Uh, so, I mean, I became first interested in it just by going through the process. So I was a resident and uh, starting to, you know, I didn't really know much about, um, you know, retirement plans and uh, budgeting and saving. And I kind of was sort of thrown into it. And as many people do, we go to some free dinners that are provided by, uh, you know, financial advisors or wealth planners. And that's when you first hear of some of these concepts. And uh, I was always skeptical. So I kind of wanted to learn it myself. So I took it upon myself to go get a business degree. So I actually, while I was a senior resident, I applied to be um, to get a part-time MBA at University of Chicago, where I was training. So Booth um, School of Medicine is a pretty strong uh, business school, and I was able to join it uh, as a, a on a part-time basis when I became junior faculty at University of Chicago. So I think that really is the intrinsic interest, and then when I actually you know pursued the degree, I really learned the nuts and bolts of um, what goes on in the finance world. Of course, the business degree is much more broad, but I tried to hone in and focus in on some of the more uh, topics that are relevant for personal finance. So I think that's where I really learned a lot more about uh, the details. I applied it to my own personal finance um, situation. And when I came to Brown, I wanted to sort of share what I was learning. So I uh, approached the medical school so to uh, give a sort of commercial bias free. Basically, I'm not trying to sell anything to anybody. I'm just trying to educate the medical students on what I think medical students should know when they're graduating medical school, because many of them are for the very first time entering the workforce, for the very first time encountering things like retirement plans, and maybe even their very first real paycheck. Maybe they've done odd jobs, but this is the first time they're going to get be getting, you know, um, paychecks on a weekly or monthly, uh, bi-weekly or monthly basis. So I wanted to share what I thought are the lessons that I learned that I wish I had known when I was a fourth year student. And that's really the genesis of the personal finance talk for graduating medical students that I've now been giving for three years um, at the medical school. So that's a long-winded way about how so I got involved in all of this. Uh, but to answer your question about why this is important, uh, I think, you know, the the lack of knowledge tends to be a stressor for a lot of um, a lot of students. Um, and you know, we're talking about the students now that have a lot of uh, medical debt uh, or student debt uh, that they have garnered through medical school. So I'm not talking about those that uh, you know have well-off parents and have been sort of living off living off the uh, you know sort of going free ride through the medical school and undergrad so you know this is, doesn't really apply to those so I myself had you know a bunch of student loans when I graduated and all of a sudden at the end of at graduation I was like oh I gotta start paying this back during medical school it was great I was getting free money I, I didn't really understand what where it was coming from what the consequences were I was just signing the promissory note and saying okay great thanks for the money uh, so it's, that's really when it first hit me so when you become a resident and now you're, of course, in residency, the hours are um, long, you're learning medicine, you're for the first time taking care of patients. And at the same time, you start getting your um, statements for uh, student loan payments and, uh, you know, all the other stuff, retirement planning, things like that. So I think that stressor 
is uh, the reason why we need to really at least spend some time during medical school and especially as you're getting ready to join residency uh, to understand basics of financial literacy. And uh, it has been shown in studies that financial literacy amongst medical students and residents is very poor, less than average, uh, less than average college students that we score at a much lower rate. And that tends to be a stressor. And that's also been shown in studies where they looked at um, resident student debt as a marker for um, you know, their financial literacy and then uh, their emotional exhaustion or burnout rate uh, during residency. And they found a pretty nice correlation as, as your, this was an internal medicine resident study, 16,000 residents was a, was a large study. And as your education debt goes up, the rate of burnout actually goes up as well. So there's that association um, that when there's a lot of other things going on in life, when your own personal life, you're kind of worried about your own financial situation, you're more likely to also have stressors at work and not the and not have the coping uh, mechanisms, and that sort of leads to burnout. So I think uh, it's a long-winded way of saying that is why I think learning financial literacy is important. I think uh, it allows us to be better doctors and take care of our patients a little bit better, and um, and that's really why I try to the message I try to deliver to the medical students. Now that you're sort of on like the attending side of things, do you see some of that burnout come into play for people who feel like they sort of missed the ball or weren't aware of some of the financial strategies um, until later on in life? Absolutely. I think it is still a factor. I think we don't talk about money much in terms of the medical field in general. It's like a taboo topic. <clears throat> so I think when people do have financial stressors, they're very they're much less likely to talk about it with their colleagues as opposed to, you know, when you're having a medical crisis in terms, you know, a patient doesn't do well, you're more likely to kind of, even then it's hard, but people are more likely to ask some colleagues about it and sort of work through uh, what could have been done better. But when it comes to these sort of finance or money matters, it's a taboo topic amongst attendings and residents and students. So no one talks about any of it. The reality is that everybody has those stressors. Everybody's going through the same thing. And, uh, but for some reason, it's uh, maybe it's just like the way medicine sort of has developed that we kind of want to focus only on patient care and focus on um, those kind of factors and not think about money at all. That's probably why healthcare costs are out of control because we don't think about the costs of what healthcare we're delivering. So that also leads to problems. And Very for true. us, it leads to problems because. Um, everyone's dealing with the same issues, but they don't talk amongst themselves and uh, leads to stress at home. And the reality is a doctor that's not happy, uh, you know, with their whatever finances, it's very hard for them to focus and sort of be fully present and take fully full care of their patients. So I think it's still true. And I do get some, you know, as you said, some attendings come and talk to me about um, things like this, especially after they you know, they see the MBA on my on my badge and they're like, oh, tell me more about the MBA. And then I kind of go into some of the details and then the, and then they ask me, oh, well, my financial advisor was talking to me about this product or this product. Do you have any knowledge about it? Uh, so I, I think those kind of avenues make it OK, socially acceptable to ask about finances, but nobody mm -hmm. normally won't bring it up, even if everyone's going through the same thing. Yeah, taboo is definitely a good way to describe it. I think altruism is kind of what is like a pillar in medical school education, which sort of feeds into this tabooism behind it. But hopefully having discussions like this um, helps make it more collective and like we're on the same team and we're all trying to make life a little bit easier and less stressful for each other. 
one of the first sort of financial guides that I had from a medicine perspective was White Coat Investor. I think probably most people who have gone through the medical school education have heard of this. One of the topics that he talks about is financial independence. And that term has sort of become more of a buzzword. Maybe it just seems like in my generation, because I'm now in this world, but it seems to come up more and more often where you're working because you want to, not because you have to. And you and I have had conversations about what this means personally for you. Uh, we've also had conversations about how financial plans are personal plans. So not one it's not a one size fits all. Um, but I'm curious what financial independence means to you and what are some of the goals that or what are some of the steps that you're taking to get to that goal? Yeah, so financial independence is a very common um, sort of term that uh, is in this personal finance circles. And I agree, White Coat Investor was like the granddaddy of physician finance. There are many others. And that just goes to show the demand for this because these folks have made careers out of it. They, this is That's their full-time job to be, uh, they're, you know, most of them doctors who are focused on personal finance. And uh, and you're right, they're the ones breaking the taboo and sort of talking about this more. So uh, I also follow uh, most of these uh, blogs and podcasts and sort of, uh, sort of try to keep up with what's going on. Um, so financial independence, you know, there's a movement called the FIRE movement that is um, actually not out of the physician circles, it's just out of the sort of, um, general personal finance circles, and it's called financial independence, retire early. Don't think it applies as well for medicine, especially because many of us spent decades with, you know, in medical school and training and, and uh, we spent a long time honing our skills and we peak really the second half of our career, really early mm -hmm. attendings are still learning things uh, or peaking later. So the retire early part doesn't necessarily apply as well, but the financial independence part absolutely does. And uh, as, exactly as you described it, it allows us to work because we want to work rather than because we have to work. Um, and you know, you can think of how that allows us to be better doctors. So if you are running a, your own clinic and you have uh, you know, a certain number of patients to see and you think that you need 30 minutes to see a patient and uh, you know, spend enough time with them, learn enough about them so that you can provide the best care and uh, the best help. However, there's going to be an administrator somewhere. If this is not your own personal practice, there's an administrator somewhere that'll come and say, you know what, you're not producing enough, so you need to see your patients in 15 minutes. And this has happened in primary care world. This is like it was a big thing when uh, when I was a medical student too. So uh, financial and financially, uh, a person who relies on their paycheck coming from work cannot just say, no, I don't agree with you. I am just going to go ahead and see my patients in 30 minutes. And you can go and cut my paycheck. You can't say that if you rely on that paycheck. But a financially independent doctor who's working because they want to be able to work, they want to be able to take care of better care of their patients, will prioritize taking care of the patients. So they are in that position to say, no, uh, I need 30 minutes to see these kind of patients. And, you know, we can negotiate some other tech tactics to make the, uh, you know, practice or clinic um, be still remain profitable. But I'm not going to sacrifice patient care um, over it. So that, I think, is a very practical example of why we should all be aiming for financial independence, because obviously, when we come out of training, we all have student loans, we all have need for money, whether it's, you know, a house and children and, uh, and you know, sort of establishing your life. But at some point, if you reach that financial independence goal, then you can really focus in on the things that actually matter. Uh, so I think that is why we should all sort of in be incorporating financial literacy in uh, medical training. 
because we all want to get to that position where we can say, you know what, it is not about the money anymore. I would like to sort of focus in on what's important to me uh, and whether that be patient care, you know, spending time, enough time that you think you can have the impact you need to have. So financial independence is really the goal of financial literacy. It's not so that we can all make more money or sort of be, uh, you know, uh, billionaires. That's really not where this, not where this is at. In fact, if you wanted to do that, medicine is not the way to go, right? Business is the way to go. Uh, but most people don't go into medicine wanting to do that. Most people want to take care of patients, but it's hard to take care of patients when you have not taken care of yourself. So this is one of those tools, financial literacy to achieve financial independence so that you've taken care of yourself on those aspects so you can take better care of your patients. Absolutely. And while we're talking about taking care of yourself, one of the first things that financial advisors, when you talk to them or they take you out to these dinners, um, they'll usually end the conversation starting to talk about disability insurance, plus or minus life insurance. Um, how did you go about that decision-making process in your own um, way of protecting yourself in your career? Yeah, I think most people who have little knowledge about um, you know finances and um, sort of personal finance world, they get their first exposure through these free dinners. Uh, and uh, I certainly had that in my residency where somebody would hand out a flyer and say, hey, there's a free dinner at the steakhouse given by this wealth management company. Come for the free dinner and you may get a talk on the side. No obligation, no, no obligation to you. And uh, so, you know, many people do that. And the many, one of the, you know, you kind of get some general advice about things, but the focus of the talk ends up being disability insurance. Um, and the reality is that is a big, big moneymaker for most of these folks. They actually earn the amount of disability insurance you sign up for that first year is their payment for that year. So you can imagine if you sign up for a $50,000 premium uh, disability insurance and they sign up 10 people, that's half a million dollars that they have just earned. So yeah sign up is the hard part. You know, it's kind of like these credit card bonuses, right? They get you a large bonus to sign up for the credit card because once you're in, it's going to be hard for you, you know, that inertia will comes in so people don't like stop and then you will end up paying fees down the line and, and they'll make up that money for, from you. Um, so it's the same with these insurance products. They want you to sign up and then hope that you'll just forget about it and it'll just kind of be an automatic uh, debit out of your account. Uh, so that's kind of how I learned about it. And uh, I think it's important. I actually wrote a little blog post on the ASA website about the importance of disability insurance. And I mean, all of this planning that we do, the financial planning, the retirement plans and the college plans all rely on us being able to work and earn the income that, that we're earning. Mm -hmm. So all our plans really rely on our ability to work because that is the cornerstone of most um, physician uh, financial plans. And if you're not able to work, you need to have a backup plan. So you want to always ensure against catastrophic events. So if something really bad happens and we are not able to perform the task that's required of you. Um, so in our world, in anesthesia, you're on your feet all day long, you're working with your hands and um, it is very sort of manually taxing. So if you're unable to do those tasks, you can no longer be an anesthesiologist. You can no longer earn that salary. All the financial plans go down the drain. So it's very important to insure against that and insure yourself enough so that you're able to maintain you know, this basic plan that you have, because most of the time the plans are focused on family and kids and you know things like that. You want to be able to maintain that lifestyle that you have. 
Um, it's really hard as a resident thinking about disability insurance because most of the time residents are young and healthy and do not have um, much medical problems and they feel pretty invincible. <laughs> you know, in their 20s, they're like, oh, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm going to be just fine. I don't need this product. Um, but I would argue the reason you need disability insurance as a resident is because you're young and healthy. So you can get not only uh, the best rate because you don't have any medical issues, so you're fully covered. And uh, you then, once you're in the system, if you develop medical issues later, like if you get your disability insurance as a CA1 and then as a CA3, you break your knee scheme, uh, that knee is already part of, the knee injury is already part of the insurance policy. So if you have any issues down the line and you cannot you know, stand and do your anesthesia anymore, um, you will be covered. As opposed to the flip side that you do not have disability insurance and then you get a knee injury, then all of a sudden uh, there'll be an exclusion that any issue related to the knee injury will not be covered by the disability insurance. And of course, that would be a big problem for a specialty where you're standing all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I think disability insurance is definitely uh, very important. And, and in that blog post, I talk about that. And I talk about very specific things about what kinds of uh, factors we should look for. And we can go into it if you like, or you know, that can certainly be a whole separate episode about what... Um, different riders that uh, that are important for resident level um, or trainees to purchase to sort of secure them for the future. Um, but my decision process, really, I, I did wait. I kind of waited until my CA2 or CA3 year. I didn't buy it right away because of sort of the same um, reasons that I've been saying. And then when I ended up buying it, I, I again, the important, the reason to buy it is because you're healthy at that time, but it's not that important to buy the full policy. So they will try to sell you the largest policy because that's how they make the money, the insurance agents. Um, but I came back and said, you know, that is not affordable to me at a resident salary. And can you give me the lowest possible policy? And they actually cut it down for me. And remember, the goal is just to get in. And then you have a rider, which is a future purchase rider, where when you become an attending and your salary goes up, you submit that documentation and they'll allow you to increase your disability insurance at that point. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter how much of a disability insurance, at least in my mind at the time, uh, that I buy as a resident. So I bought a cheaper level, so I had paid less. And then as soon as I became an attending and I could afford to pay a little bit more, I upgraded my um, insurance policy. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I thought of it. And that is something that was not sold to me. That was Nobody told me that. I kind of had to sort of work hard to get that. So right. one of the things I do say is, I, I do say is that, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like they want you to buy the highest possible amount because that's what they're, you know, that's what they're selling to you. Doesn't mean you have to go there and it doesn't have to be the best possible policy. If it doesn't work for your finances, it's worse to say, you know what, I'm not going to buy anything at all. That's worse. Buy something mm -hmm. in between and plan on increasing as you go forward. Mm -hmm. Solid, very solid. How about uh, life insurance? Yeah, so, you know, you'd rightly said personal finance is personal. So uh, all these things we talk about, and you're going to be talking about during your upcoming episodes this season, all of those factors have to be, they're, they're very generalized. To, uh, the topics and the advice that people give on these topics are generalized and what you read about in blogs and pod podcasts. But at the end of the day, the per, the individual has to funnel that information and make it work for them because it may not, the way it is presented may not work for the individual. And the worst possible thing you can do is just say, this is not for me. There is some amount, you know, this, you should at least engage in some of these things, depending on your personal situation. Um, even if you can't fully, for example, max out the Roth IRA as a resident, even if you can't fully do it, at least do something. 
because mm -hmm. um, these are important steps in the personal finance journey and the personal finance goals. And the problem is people present, oh, but, you know, max out your Roth IRA, $6,500 for this year. And the resident is like, I don't have $6,500 so this year, so I'm not going to do any of it at all. You would have been better off, uh, you know, getting at least, you know, one or 2000 whatever you can afford. Mm -hmm. So the same thing with life insurance, it's, uh, you know, personal finance is personal. So it depends on, are there dependents in your life that depend on your, your income? Or so if you're, if you drop dead the next day, is there somebody who relies on you um, in order to be able to um, live? So do you have a spouse, um, children? Do you have a house and a mortgage that, um, that needs to be paid? So all those factors come in in life insurance. Again, life insurance when you're um, young is relatively cheap. So, it, you know, it's not very expensive, but it's just like, oh, why do I need life insurance right now? I'm young and I'm healthy. I don't need it. Right. But um, so I personally did not buy it actually until I got until I got married, until I had a house and a mortgage and people relied on my income. That's when I purchased my life insurance policy. Um, mm -hmm. I did not buy it as a resident. But, you know, again, it not not everyone's the same. Um, but there's a couple types of type in, uh, types of life insurance. There's something called a term life insurance, which basically is a life insurance policy that is um, for a certain amount of time, which is the term. So it could be a 10-year, 20-year, or 30-year term insurance policy. That is very cheap. It is money that you will put into the insurance policy. And if you were to die within the term of the policy, then you would get the payout for whatever um, the policy you have bought. And um, that is the cheap version. There's a more expensive version called whole life insurance that is sold as, you know, you pay more, but some of that money gets invested into the market by the insurance company. And the thought is that as you get older, you have put a certain amount of money on it, you will actually get a return later on in life if you've actually mm -hmm. survived um, the time. So it's called whole life insurance because it gives you money back. If you, in fact, survive when you're, you know, 65, 70 or whatever the, uh, the amount of time it is. Mm -hmm. The problem is there's a conflict of interest there that the um, agents tend to make more money with whole life insurance than they make with term life insurance. Term life insurance actually is very cheap. You can go buy it online without, you know, too much. There's like online websites you can buy it off of. Uh -huh. um, but unfortunately, whole life insurance is pushed a lot towards doctors and you can Google this and White Coat Investor and all these other websites have a whole bunch of articles on it. And uh, they sell it as you'll get something back. You'll get money back. But the reality is it's not as good as what you would get back if you were to just invest that money on your side yourself. Mm -hmm. So the mantra that most people say is you do not want to mix insurance policies and investing. You want to mm -hmm. keep those separate. So buy the term life insurance, which is cheap. And whatever yeah. money you save, you actually invest it yourself. And you're not relying on an insurance company to then invest that money from you. Fascinating. All right. Last question to tie things up, which I thought was very interesting the last time we talked about this. How do you treat uh, cell phone insurance or like trip insurance? Yeah. So this actually comes out of my time at uh, University of Chicago at Booth. Um, behavioral um, economics is a, sort of a burgeoning field within finance. Like we used to think that... Um, human beings made decisions very objectively with, without any emotions. We used to think that people would kind of weigh pros and cons, just like the economic models would um, suggest, and realize that, oh, this is objectively better than that. In real life, people completely make decisions emotionally. Right. So I buy a phone, and I have a brand new phone, so emotionally I'm so invested in this phone that I will pay more money 
towards the cell phone carrier people to protect my phone. Um, even though the phone is just, you know, objectively, you bought it, it you, when you buy it, the day you buy it, it depreciates, right? Like you, when you go, you buy a phone today, you go sell back the next day, you're, you're going to get less money than you bought it for. Right. Um, yet we actually put money into it because psychologically, this is like a brand new phone. It is a lot of value. Um, so, so the behavioral finance, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if someone's selling you an insurance product, they're clearly making money out of it, right? Like you're not coming ahead. So yes, there'll be stories of people say, oh yeah, I bought, bought phone insurance, my phone broke and they paid for it. It was great. Uh, but on, in, on average, in general, for all the insurance policies that we buy as individuals, um, we're actually going to be losing out um, at the end of it. So the advice is that you only buy insurance for catastrophic losses. So disability insurance, if you get disabled, that is a catastrophe. You should insure against that. Home insurance, if their home burns down tomorrow, you want to have insurance to cover that because that's a large amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, but these kind of small insurance, like your $1,000 cell phone, the best route would be, you know, instead of paying whatever it is, eight or $10 a month that they charge, take that money and put that in your emergency fund. So you can self-insure against that cell phone, self-insure against your computer that you bought. So you have an emergency fund and you've assigned it just for that reason that you're now, instead of giving the money away to, you know, Apple or AT&T or whatever for insurance against the phone, you just self-insure against it. So mm -hmm. anything that can be replaced, so that is any consumer item, you know, uh, your phone, your um, laptop, and even trip insurance. I mean, depending on how expensive that trip is, like you probably should self-insure against them instead of buying all of these things. You know, things like a car, you know, if you have a $100,000, whatever, Tesla, that's, right. you know, that thing breaks, you want to have insurance against it. But even then, you do not need the full comprehensive coverage. You can have a higher deductible, and which then again, you save that uh, um, savings into your emergency fund so you can save it. Um, so yeah, it's very fascinating. I, I, that's a way of thinking I did not really appreciate until I, you know, sort of went through some of these classes. And then since then, I've sort of been very interested in, you know, behavioral finance. So there's a lot of resources on that, about like the psychology of money, like how do we actually think about money? And I try to sort of bring that out during that talk. It's not just like facts of these are the things you should do. I try to spend some time in how you should think about you know, medical students don't make any money as residents, they, you know, they make a stipend and then all of a sudden they become attendings and many times, you know, the um, income quadruples and right. the resident is still in resident mode, thinking about money as a resident. And then if your income quadruples, of course, they're not and they're not prepared and they're not able to handle, um, you know, that change in their finance. So this is why right. doctors get in help. Um, so insurance is one of those sort of tricks that I sort of have appreciate it. I've applied in my own life. And, you know, again, it's, it's, this is a lifelong, it's a long-term. So sometimes I feel like, oh, if I had insurance, that would have been nice, but I have to remember this is a long-term over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. I'm probably going to come out ahead. Great. Great. This was a fantastic way to start the season. I think uh, we covered why it's important, uh, things to look out for and how human nature really impacts all the decisions we make, even if we think we're going to be objective about financial decisions. Um, I think emotions are so powerful and it's good to be introspective about it. Absolutely. I would encourage your listeners um, to sort of stay engaged during this whole season, because especially for folks who are not well versed in some of these uh, finance topics you're going to talk about, mm -hmm. the very first step is just knowing, just like 
taking the step saying, I just want to learn this information or at least hear about this information. And you don't have to like know it at the end of the podcast, be like, okay, I know exactly what I need to do with my retirement account tomorrow. Right. No, the goal is really to get you thinking so that you can then look it up because there's plenty of online information now and from reliable websites like, you know, physician websites that again, have made careers out of this. Mm -hmm. And you can then be educated enough to understand some of these differences. And we're, you know, we have have professional degrees, right? We've been, we've studied Krebs cycles and memorized those. This is not hard. It's just scary because we don't know anything about it. But um, I think the message should be sort of, uh, you know, learn the basic terminology. Anything that gets advanced, you can just go look it up. And trust me, you can kind of figure it out. Um, you know yourself so I, I'm, I'm excited for this uh, rest of the season and I'm definitely going to be tuning in excellent and I encourage everyone to stay tuned we're going to do an episode just about student loans on its own um, which I think is something that really pulls at the heartstrings of a lot of medical students as they're graduating um, and even residents as they start making payments even though we're in this sort of funny period right now where payments are on pause uh, but I think realistically, we know that's not forever. Um, so it's something that weighs heavily on students and residents. So stay tuned for that one. Well, Dr. Thank Asher, you thank, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me again. Of course. We'll catch you next time.